In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, <sighs> Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. My name is Michaela Turk. I'm joined here by my dad, Steve, and my brother, Ben. And this episode is a special one. We're joined here with a special co-host, Rich Chamberlain. Hello, Rich. How are you? Hello, I'm great. How are you now? I'm doing all right. Uh, it's pretty hot up here in Maryland. Um, today you're joining us to do the Beastmaster, correct? That is correct. And just before we the get The Beastmaster to- from, from 1982, we should say. The, the original and uh, the best. <laughs> well, yeah, the original one. But before we get started in the movie, Rich is um, one of the co-hosts of the Classic Club, Classic Cars Club podcast with Jeff Owens. And uh, a podcast I recommended before and I still recommend again. And Rich also joined us in a prior episode that people can look up, The Seventh Seal, where it was sadly just him and I. But now he gets everybody because Rich was pretty sad when he didn't have Ben and Michaela recording with him. I get the full Turek effect on this one. This this is awesome. And for those that are no number, the Diecast Review Podcast, where the roll of a die decides what genre we pick and – this time the genre was fantasy, and uh, Rich and I picked the Beastmaster. We actually picked it jointly. Yeah, so if there's anybody out there who wants to uh, to blame us for picking the Beastmaster, uh, I'll, I'll put it entirely in, in Steve's hand. It's his show. <laughs> and and I'll take I'll take full credit for it. You know, if, if Rich wants to get away, I mean, I, I I've always enjoyed the Beastmaster when I saw it in the movie theater in 1982, and I've watched it periodically since. I mean. I never had cable, so I never knew about this HBO thing. Hey, Beastmaster's on until like way <laughs> later. And people are like, because I never had cable growing up until I was like in college. Yeah, if it, anytime from like early to mid 80s, if it wasn't Beastmaster, it was Crawl. One of those two in the afternoons, like at 4.30. It just seemed like they just rotated those two movies back and forth and a handful of others. But yeah, I I didn't know that 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 was how Beastmaster got its cult following. Honestly, I knew that it was on all the time, but I, when I did a little bit of research, I, I realized that that's how it got its, its following was it's uh, HBO and eventual Superstation TBS showing. Apparently they showed the heck out of it too back in the day. So no, I, I'm, and I'm, let me just say, I did enjoy the Beastmaster. It, it has, you know, some flaws as we'll talk about, but I actually did enjoy it. I love that genre. The, early to mid-80s, sword and sorcery, fantasy. Uh, I love that that era of films. And we got good movies and great movies and bad movies, but uh, honestly missed that. And I wish we would uh, wish we would kind of go back to that a little bit, get a little bit more variety at the, uh, at the box office. I love my superhero movies, but I'm ready for ready for maybe a little more variety. And, and maybe, you know, maybe this podcast, maybe us talking about the Beastmaster will inspire someone 
to to bring the Beastmaster back to the big screen. Maybe Mark Singer is available. I don't know. Is he still alive? I believe he's still alive, and um, I'm sure he would come back for more Beastmaster. I mean, he came back for two movie sequels of the Beastmaster. I'm not sure if he was in the TV series that that came out of it, but I know he was in the movies. If he was willing to yeah, come back think- after that second Beastmaster movie, he's definitely probably willing to come back now. I, I, I haven't seen Have you seen Beastmaster 2? Yeah, Ben, have you? I don't know. I didn't realize that I had seen Beastmaster before until I was until we were like almost done the movie. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> At least I realized I'd watched it pretty quick in. Yeah, Michaela realized maybe like 10 minutes into the movie, she was like, I remember this. And I was like, from what? Because we watched it before, Ben. And he still didn't realize he'd watched it until later on in the movie when he was like, oh, you were right, Michaela. I have watched this before. And I was like, I told you so. You can tell that uh, Beastmaster had a big impact on Ben when he first saw it when he was younger. (laughs) It was a long time ago. For me. A long time ago for me. It was a long time ago for both of us. Yeah, but I mean the last time Dad and Rich Chamberlain saw it was probably like the 80s or the 90s. Well, the first time I saw it was in the theater in 1982. And um, I've seen it ever so often since I've probably seen it probably six or seven times. I was going to say, who do you think watched it with us when we watched it when we were younger? His dad. Got it from Netflix. I think for me, I haven't seen it from start to finish since the 1980s. I maybe have seen bits and pieces of it if it was on TV over the years. I don't recall it being on television for probably two decades since the last time I saw it. Maybe perusing the channels, you know, doing some channel surfing. So for me, yeah, it, it's been decades since I've seen this movie from start to finish. So I remembered parts of it. Other parts, I clearly did not. So I, and I, I was actually caught off guard a little bit by the, uh, by the, uh, Tony Roberts scene in the, in the lake. Cause I forgot this is PG, but this is pre temple of doom. So Back in the early '80s, when uh, when you could get away with a lot more in PG films than you can now, so um, that scene kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, what is this rated? And I thought that this was PG. So, yeah, this was in the world before PG-13. So now it would have been a PG-13 film, easily. Yeah, and I had just rewatched the Indiana Jones films, and so just uh, that was a conversation Carla and I had about Temple of Doom. She didn't realize that that was the movie that was the catalyst for PG-13. <laughs> it and a couple of others, but Temple of Doom was the big one that kind of caused people to... And she was like, well, what was so bad in Temple of Doom that, you know, well, the, you know, the heart scene, you know, digging into yeah. somebody's chest and pulling the heart out of the... That, you know, nowadays, you know, that's like nothing compared to what you can see on television in an episode of The Walking Dead, but back then, that was a little... A little much for PG, and that kind of changed everything. But when that that changed, I mean, some of these movies they they're retroactively they never went back and, and updated their ratings. So this movie's still PG, but in reality, would definitely be a PG thirteen. So 
Exactly. And it, it's right when you and I were growing up. So we got to see all these great films and it's just like the parents are like, Oh, it's PG. Go have fun. And we're like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, you're exactly right. You would see things that you, you definitely wouldn't have just a few years later. So, um, and I, you know, growing up, my parents sheltered me from R rated movies quite a bit. So I, most of my R rated movies were, uh, seen late night on hbo which was scrambled and i wasn't supposed to be watching in my bedroom but back then with a little turn of the dial on my black and white tv the scrambling on hbo would go away and i could get hbo perfectly clear in my bedroom so uh late night viewings of like the friday the 13th films and uh, uh all the horror movies and movies i wasn't supposed to be watching late at night i'd stay up into the wee hours of the morning watching those movies well, I have two older brothers, four and eight years older, that allowed, that t- would take me to see a lot of those films. And um, my parents just didn't seem to care because I was the third child. They were just like, oh, just keep them busy, you know. And, and just, <laughs> so it was a totally I was the third world. child, but I was like, I was the, the, the baby, you know. I, I, my sisters were so much older. And my mom and dad, yeah, they, they sheltered me from a lot of that. And so, you know, I, there was a lot of stuff I, just, I didn't see legally until I turned 17. So, uh, but again, Beastmaster was PG, right? And you could sneak that stuff in and they're like, they think you're watching the Beastmaster. Oh, go ahead and watch it. And you're like, okay. And then you got those, like I said, the scene with Tanya Roberts caught me off guard when I was rewatching this. I was like, whoa, this is PG. Yes, and that may is. be one of the, 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 uh, the shining moments of, of, uh, of the movie. <laughs> Tanya, Tanya Roberts was, uh, in her prime, this is post Charlie's Angels, um, and a few years away from View to a Kill. So I, I think um, she was the stereotypical damsel in distress, but in some ways not, which we'll talk about. So before we get too far off, um, we're going to do uh, the trailer, right, Michaela? Yeah. So. Um... It was foretold by witches. It was conceived through sorcery. And it was to be destroyed by all that is evil. But the courage of one mortal saved it. And so, into an age of darkness, in a time of mysticism, sacrifice, and plunder, there came the only light, the Beastmaster. Born with the strength of a black tiger, the courage of an eagle, the power that made him more than any hero. More than any lover. He was lord and master over all beasts. He was the beast master. Behold the wonder, the horror, the fantasy, the challenge of the one warrior they call the Beastmaster. Mark Singer is Dar, Tanya Roberts is Carey, Rip Torn is Mayak, John Amos is Seth. Together they take us on a fascinating journey back into unexplored times. Conquer your fears. 
face the unknown and discover the incredible link between man, animal, and all that is phantasmagorical. In the world of dungeons, dragons, and Dar, the Beastmaster, the epic adventure of a new kind of hero. Oh, that trailer was awesome. And uh, all right. Now, to give you guys an idea of the plot, um, in the kingdom of Orok, the high priest Mayax, who's played by Rip Torn, to scene chewing ability of note of, of, of greatness. I mean, he just he lives for this part, is given a prophecy by his witches that he would die facing the son of King Zed. So he sends one of his witches to kidnap and kill the child. Because we all know in Greek and Roman mythology, this works so well to go against fate. And even one of the witches tells him, this is not how it works. But just go for it. Let's try to kill the unborn child. And, of course, a villager rescues the child and raises him as his own son. And named Dar, who's played by Mark Singer when he's an adult. And he's played by, um, I can't remember the child's actor but a younger per a young child earlier in the film. Um, Dar learns how to fight being trained by his um, foster father, so to speak, does not know of his heritage. And then one, and then learns that he has the ability to communicate with animals or beasts, ergo the beast master. And his father tells him to keep it a secret because, you know, people will think of him being a demon or whatever. It doesn't really say, it, but it's kind of implied that the, he, ostracized by society because he has abilities different than the rest. Um, eventually, as he's, when he's an adult, the Juns, a horde of fanatic barbarians allied with Mayox, attacks the village when Dar and a lot of the young people are away and, when, and basically slaughters the town or the village. They, they come back. They get beat up too. Dar gets taken down but saved by one of his beast friends who pulls him, which is his dog or wolf, depending on which way you want to go, um, pulls him to safety, and he comes back and then wants to seek revenge against the Junes. And as he starts on his journey, he ends up getting an, a golden eagle named Sorok, who joins him. Then eventually he gets a pair of ferrets that join his team, Kodo and Podo, and... A panther. I'm just going to call it a tiger because really it's a tiger painted black. Why? I have no idea. But named Rue. So it's. It, I mean, it, it it looks like a tiger. It smells like a tiger. It's a tiger. I mean, even then the black paint doesn't always cover all the tiger stripes and everything else. So I mean, it, it to me it's a tiger. But I know it was supposed to be a panther. Um, as he journeys along, he eventually encounters a redhead named Kira, who's played by Tanya Roberts, who Rich already mentioned. And um, there's a little bit of um, mischief that goes on between the two of them. And he goes to help her out, um, even though she told him not to. Um, she goes to, He goes to seek her out. And then he, she's in the temple with Mayox. But on his way, he encounters two other people. Um, Seth. Seth and um, Tall. And Seth is played by John Amos, and what can you say? John Amos is always great. Um, Josh Milrad is tall, 
who we find out later on is another son of King Zed. And um, they're going to seek a revenge against Maox. And then eventually this ragtag band gets together. They go and do whatever they have to do to save Kira, fight Maox, and fight the Juns. And I'll leave that part up to a little vague as to what happens in the end. Um, we might we might spoil it. We might not. We'll see how we go. But it gives you an idea of the main players. So, Rich, we'll start with you first since you're a guest. We, we, we throw out something that you enjoyed about this movie, and we'll just go around the table and expand and broaden the horizons as we do so. All right. Um, well, I love this genre. Like I said, I, I do enjoy this time period where we were getting a lot of sword and sorcery fantasy films. Um, and they were really all across the board. You had classics like Clash of the Titans, right, which came out the year before in 81. And then you had a slew of uh, cheaper, lower-budget productions that were happening over in Europe. Uh, a lot of you know Italian sword and sorcery films are coming out around this time. So you had, you know, the best, you had the worst, and you had those films that were kind of being cranked out that kind of fall in between. And for me, The Beastmaster is not the worst, and it's not the best. It, it falls right in that middle zone. Um, I think a lot of the, the cheapies that were coming out of, of Europe that I've seen, some of those are pretty bad. Um, you know, and, and again, Something like a Clash of the Titans obviously is helped by a variety of things, most notably Ray Harryhausen, who, as we're recording this, we're just, what, a day away from what would have been his, his 100th birthday. Um, so I think that, you know, with Beastmaster, obviously you didn't have any, um, you didn't have any stop motion creatures or cheap variations thereof, but you had a lot of the, the tropes that you find in a lot of these movies. I mean, you've got the, the evil wizard, uh, you have witches, you know, doing their nefarious deeds. Um, you have the, the dashing, you know, warrior who is on a quest. Um, you have, uh, you have the young damsel in distress who Tanya Roberts wasn't necessarily a, a damsel in distress because as, as the, movie progresses, you know, she's got her own set of skills. She kind of plays that damsel role until, you know, she goes off and gets her warrior garb on at one point and just <laughs> Mark Singer kind of looks and he's like, why is she dressed like that? You know, it's like she changes in the middle of a, of a uh, crazy sequence, but I think she, there was a bit more to her character. Um, it's, it's, got, it's got all the elements, right. That, that make for a fun, Sword and Sorcery flick, it does suffer a little bit from uh, the fact that it does have a lower budget. There were certain things that I picked up on in this viewing, like the opening credits, for some reason, uh, were very lackluster. Uh, there was a lot of static shots as they were throwing out the, uh, the, uh, the list of credits. And some of the fight choreography was very, very lackluster. And that I think it has to fall on, and I never knew. This is another thing that I, I discovered. I never quite connected that 
Don Coscarelli was the director of the Beastmaster. Now, horror fans will know Don Coscarelli because of the Phantasm films. He's only done 11 films as a director. Um, and, and we're talking Phantasm 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. I mean, he didn't direct 5, but uh, he doesn't have a lot of, of films to his credit. You know, Bubba Hotep, uh, an episode of Masters of Horror, John Dies at the End. Beastmaster is, is really you know, the only film in this genre. There was something he did called Survival Quest that I'm, uh, it would, you would think that it would sound like it's, it's part of a, of a fantasy genre, but it's not. So, I mean, this was his only, you know, really dip into the genre. And I think that his, his lack of expertise in fight sequences and in filming a movie like this kind of comes across um, as some of the deficiencies of the film, but it doesn't cripple the movie. Um, for me, it's just there, there were certain things that I picked up as far as, as certain shots that he did, or um, again, some of the choreography seemed a little off to me compared to other films, but again, better than, than others that we would get that coming out of Europe. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Are you guys on, on the same page as I am on that? Or, you know, Steve, I think you, you might have a, a deeper connection to, to Beastmaster than I do because you saw it in the theater. That always enhances memories of a movie. I know for me, you know, my first James Bond movie is, is was Moonraker. That's the first one I saw in the movie theater. And it is not the best James Bond film. But I always hold it near and dear to my heart because I have vivid memories of going on a Sunday afternoon to the Cinema's East Theater watching Moonraker. You know, I'd watch James Bond movies on Sunday nights on ABC with my folks, and now this was my first time seeing it on the big screen. So I always loved that movie more than I probably should because of I have that nostalgic connection to it. Um, so you'd mentioned that you, you saw this in the theater. So what do you, what do you guys feel? I'm going to defer to McKinnon and Ben first before I get my thoughts on some stuff. Um, so before I go into some of my likes, I wanted to touch on what you were saying about some of the fight choreography seeming a little bit wanting, I guess, would be a way to put it. Um, one of the things that I kind of noticed was in the beginning when you first see uh, Dar's adoptive father, he has this really cool weapon thing that he uses, and he uses it to fight the witch and then when he's training dar you see him use it then and then he gives it to dar and dar uses it like one time when he's fighting guys with the that are trying to kill the tiger panther thing and then you never see it again until the very end of the movie yeah he like never uses it but it's like supposed to be this at least in my eyes it's supposed to be this special kind of signature weapon thing that only he and his dad really kind of have and know how to use and he doesn't use it at all yeah i wonder if that was like a because of the this was a low budget production and like nine million dollars i wonder if using that weapon required some extra special effects in order for it to get the full effect maybe that's why they only did it a few times during the film, but yeah, that's right. I never really thought about that. That, that, that. that they make a big deal about it, but ultimately, you get seen very little. 
Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing that you did about that. I thought maybe the uh, they had tried using it in different fight choreography and just ended up cutting it or something because it didn't seem to work. Like maybe the effect wasn't working at the time. And it was like, oh, it's it's just not going to work out. We can just use the sword and the tiger painted black as the panther and get the animals more involved instead of using this like glaive-like thingy. Yeah, that's um, unfortunate that they didn't use it more. Uh, I mean, the money, the movie made money, sort of. I mean, it was $9 million budget, $14 million made at the box office, but it wasn't a breakaway hit, but it didn't lose money. Um, now, how much money it made in syndication, I'd be interested to know that. But, I mean, I know movies make a lot more money now than they, they used to. Uh the movie studio probably sold it to HBO for, you know, virtually nothing because it wasn't a huge hit at the box office. So HBO, because they paid so little for it, it's probably why they played it so much just because it wasn't costing them anything. They, you know, probably had, sometimes when they, they studio or uh, TV stations will acquire a movie, they have X number of plays and other movies, they have unlimited plays. That's why, the Martian, for example, seems like it pops up every other day on on FX because they have an unlimited amount of, of uh, plays that they can do for The Martian. So that's easy and cheap programming. Had to be the case with Beastmaster. It had to cost them virtually nothing, which is why it popped up so, so frequently. But yeah, it, I think the budget crippled uh, certain aspects of this movie. Uh, and that had to choreography i think may may have been one part of it that and special effects with that weaponry uh left it kind of wanting i will say they did get a lot out of their budget building the set like the village that dar was raised in by his adoptive father that was a pretty cool set with the like raised houses and the wall that yeah. went around it and then just Whatever location they filmed this in, it had a lot of beautiful mountain and canyon scenes that were shot very well. And you can tell they probably used a helicopter for a lot of the hawk or eagle. I think it was a Golden Eagle's vision shots. So that probably cost them a good bit of money just renting the helicopter and getting the cameras up in the air and doing the different shots that they did in those locations. So they might have gone away from using the money for the fight scenes in order to get more of these like establishing and scenery shots. Well, there was some beautiful shots. Certainly that last shot, you know, where, where uh, Dar and Kiri are kissing on that, you know, cliff. That's, that's kind of a cool shot. That, that's an awesome way to end the movie. Um, and not something that you would find usually in a, in a lower budget film. So um, you're probably right. They, they, you know, had to kind of pick and choose what they wanted to do. And so um, take advantage of, of scenery. And that set, I, you know, I looked at to see if it was a standing set. Um, and I didn't see that, you know, anything about that. So I'm, I don't know if, if you guys found anything out about that, but I, I'm almost willing to bet it had to be, a standing set that they were able to, to go ahead and use those kind of things don't really exist anymore. And you don't even really need to have them because 
you can just do CGI, but back then, um, you know, studios would have those type of sets just waiting around. It would often get reused, repainted, you know, redressed up a little bit uh, to uh, to be repurposed for the next movie. So, I mean, I almost willing to bet this was, was, was something that they were able to um, inherit from, from another movie, but I wasn't able to find anything out that that confirmed that that was actually the fact or not. I will say, I do agree with you there. It felt that the main city that a lot of the events take place on, take place in towards the end of the movie, it definitely did look like it was made for a different movie because it has like this almost Aztec style temple and like almost looked like it was made for a movie that would be set in like the Aztec time period with the village around it and they just changed some stuff about it and added a few plot points to make it work for this movie and I thought it was okay except for when they used that model of the town that it didn't really work for me yeah sometimes when they repurpose sets like that, you know, sometimes it, it, it works. Sometimes it doesn't, it just kind of, um, you know, I guess it kind of depends on, on, you know, how it fits in with the movie. I'm looking right now to see if I can do the wonder of the internet to see if there's anything else about the set. I know that the movie was shot in California's semi Valley and in the Los Padres National Forest, uh, Lake Piru in Ventura County in the Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada. Interior shots were done at the MGA, MGM UA lot, but it doesn't say anything about the standing sets. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I find it hard that those standing sets would have been there in the forest area or in, in Simi Valley, but it's possible something may have been there. So, Well, we never know. And exactly. It's not, it's not listed there for us to find out, but um, I agree with a lot of people like with the, the village set was interesting because like I said, the buildings being on stilts, you know, and, and you always wonder like, Hmm, I wonder why they were built on stilts. Like was it just to set up that way? So that way when the village gets destroyed, you can see, better carnage, you know, when the buildings are falling over, when they're set ablaze. Uh, and that's, that's what I think, because there's no history of like to why, like, is this a flood region, that kind of stuff as to where, why they would be up that high. Um, it's hard to say along those things. Um, Mikhail, I think you said you wanted to say something else about the movie before you forget it. Because you said, you said you, you wanted to, ta- you wanted to talk about what Rich said one thing, but you wanted to talk about something else. Now you don't remember. Okay. Um, I really, as you said, Rich, because I saw when I was like 13 years old, back in 1982, as you said, with Moonraker, it hits that spot where you're seeing it in the theater, you're seeing it with, um, I I think I saw with my eldest brother, Rick. Um, I'm not sure if my middle brother, Joe, was there or not. And it it was was just really enjoyable because, you know, you, you go into it, you see the trailer in the, on TV and you go, Oh, let's go see the movie. Let's go see the Beastmaster Cause we were seeing all the sword and 
sorcery type things, the fantasy ones like Crawl, Conan, all those things as they were coming out, Clash of the Titans in those early 80s. And um, I enjoyed Mark Singer's character a lot. I mean, he's acting a lot. And John Amos, you know, because I remember him from Good Times and Roots. And, of course, Mark Singer later on would do the miniseries V. And um, a lot of people would remember him from that that grew up in our same time frame. You know, and um, those because that, that TV miniseries was um, one of those huge science fiction hits that ended up having a sequel come out of it. And uh, there, there were things that he did that were really well, considering the, the type that he was set there to do. I mean, basically, he's supposed to be this um, – warrior who's going to come through and save everybody and um you know because that's that's the title the beast master with his friends the beast i thought it was interesting when i read that this book this was loosely adapted from a book the beast master and that originally it was supposed to be a, a navajo warrior and it was supposed to be a science fiction setting in the future and obviously uh-huh. it didn't do that so it was just it's was, it was kind of to me i was like right now i was like I was my, exactly what you just said. Oh, I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, so there's, and the person who wrote the book, um, Andre Norton, she, um, after seeing what the changes that they did, a lot of those changes, she asked that her name be pulled from the movie in the credits because she did not uh, appreciate the amount of changes that were done to her book. So now I'm kind of curious to get a copy of the book and read it just to see how divergent the two things are, you know, since it seems like to the, according to the author, there's, there's huge discrepancies. But then again, there's been a lot of movies that I've seen over the years where the authors say, Oh, I don't really like this. And it, uh, for instance, Stephen King and the shining, you know, he hated the um, Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick shining. And, um, but the, a lot of people that see the shining really enjoy it. And um, so it's kind of interesting how sometimes, it does hold true, and sometimes it doesn't, depending on you know everybody's point of view. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, 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 you're, I'm trying to think how this movie would have worked, and I think it would have worked well with that that different setting. I think it could could have easily uh, done well. I mean, clearly they they probably changed it so that it could fit into the more into the sword and sorcery you know, genre that was so popular at that point. But, uh, yeah, I'd be curious to, to go back to that original source material and see what the differences were and to see what could be done about making a new version that would be maybe more faithful to the original source material. That would be interesting. Oh, it would. And, um, interestingly enough, other things I read, um, Rip Torn was not the original person that they wanted to play the high priest. Do you know who they wanted to originally play the high priest? No. Who did they want? Klaus Kinski. Oh. But he cost too much money. So <laughs> I was say, he would have he would have been more of a top, well, more in demand actor at the point. That would have been, what, a couple of years after Nosferatu. Um, gosh, that would have been, that would have been interesting from a production standpoint. He's notoriously difficult on set. Uh, yeah, that would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah, and also, Tanya Roberts was not the original person that they wanted. Um, the director wanted Demi Moore. I saw that, and I, I'm so thankful they went with with uh, Tanya Roberts. I, I, 
Demi Moore is probably a better actress. I think she would have been, I don't know, she would have been too, almost too young. That would have changed, uh, that would have changed the, the way the movie went. I could, I couldn't see Mark Singer getting romantic with an 18 year old Demi Moore. That would have been a bit, a bit odd, I think. That would have changed that, that part of the movie. That tone of the movie would have been, have to have been different. Um, things besides those people I just mentioned, anybody, um, anybody else have other things they want to talk about that they liked? Michaela? I liked the ferrets. They were the best part of the whole movie. <laughs> Kodo and Podo. And why did you like the ferrets, Michaela? Well, one, I think they were black-footed ferrets, which is the only um, wild ferret that's left. And it's the only wild ferret native to North America. Though they went extinct in the wild and had to be brought back through selective breeding programs. But then they were reintroduced into the wild. Yeah, I also enjoyed the black-footed ferret just because it's it's not an animal that you see in movies very often. I feel like they get a, a lot of underrepresentation, I guess, but they did a lot of really cool things in this film, especially since it was the two of them running around and doing things and having an epic chase scene with what do they call it like a death guard or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the ferrets definitely brought the um, the comedic relief, you know, because every time they came in there, certain situations would be just um, augmented because of um, the, the humor that they were trying to get out of them. Like you said, with the deaf guard trying to chase them, they're going through like the um, the drain pipes or whatever, and it's destroying them, and it's never going to catch them. But I think my favorite scene is when they're being lowered down to get the key, and the um, the guy that's making that deaf warrior type thing turns and he sees these two ferrets on the string and he's looking at them. They're looking at him and then all heck breaks loose in the film <laughs> in that room. Yeah. <laughs> they delayed him yeah, just putting, enough. <laughs> yeah. Putting the little eel like thing in reminded me of uh wrath of Khan, um, which came out the same year. Um, having that little fluorescent thing put in and, and turning a mind less out. That was kind of cool. I gotta say, I liked seeing John Amos in this. He very much out of you know his norm, um, and at times it was a little off-putting, right? But there's the one scene where uh, Dar has they find the necklace, right? And John Amos go he he goes you know bad guy mode, which is not something that you would see normally see of him. I mean, on good times, he would get in that mode with JJ, right? But um, I, I don't know. I, I, that showed a side that you normally didn't see of him in, in most of his roles, uh, at least that I've seen him of. And uh, although it is a little off-putting at times to see him as a as a warrior type, um, it was different. Uh, it was different, and it kind of made me. You know, wish we would have seen maybe a little bit more of that uh, from him. And certainly around this time period, he certainly had he had the build, you know, to to do things like that. So I know that I, I was reading something about how when he and Mark Singer first met, wearing their warrior garb, they both looked at each other and both started bursting out laughing, laughing because they thought it was just 
they looked at each other, you know, it's like, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> wearing this. And they just had fun with it. Um, you know, I don't know what type of, of, you know, a set oftentimes is, you know, the mood on a set is dictated by the mixture of the cast and, and the director. And I don't know enough about Don Coscarelli as far as like, you know, what type of atmosphere he, he has on, on set as a director. Um, you know, this is certainly the only time he ever dipped his, his toes in this genre. Um, but, you know, I'd be curious to, to know, you know, if that jovial attitude was carried over into the, to the film to make for, for a good, uh, good experience. Uh, I, again, I, it's kind of hard to find some stuff on this movie because it's not talked about as much. Um, everyone's seen it, certainly of our age, you know, genre that everyone saw it back in the day, but it, it's a movie that oftentimes gets overlooked a little bit, you know, and the other things I've heard people talk about, I, you know, honestly, I agree. I think Toto and Poto are cute. I know some people think they're the worst part of the movie because it's, it's, they're comedic and people are looking for a darker sword and sorcery. For me, I, I like a balance. I, I like movies that are all dark and serious, but I also like movies that are just lighthearted fun. And I, I think we don't, we don't get enough of that in movies today. Everything, you know, other aside from like the superhero genre, but just uh, in movies in general, it seems like we, we're a much, so many films are so much darker. I like, some films that have a little bit more, you know, lighthearted comedy to them. And I think that that's exactly what uh, Toto and Poto are in this. They're the comic relief. And uh, you can't help but love them when you're watching this movie. You know, and so anyone who, who says they're the weakest part of the film, I think they're looking for a different type of movie. They're not looking for what Beastmaster is bringing to the table. They're looking for something different. And, and they probably, you know, they're, that's where I think a lot of times with your frame of mind when you go into watching a movie, you've got to, you got to know what you're getting and, and you got to be ready to appreciate it. And so sometimes people will offer up their thoughts on movies and really kind of rag on them a little bit. And it's like, well, you know, that it wasn't what they were looking for at that moment. Um, and, and so you kind of have to take their critical review with a grain of salt because they were looking for something entirely different. I will say I really enjoyed Mark Singer's portrayal of Dar because I think he brought a more almost lighthearted take to the character than a lot of other actors would at the time. And I think that added or made the scenes with Toto and Poto and the different almost a little bit comedic parts of the film kind of flow better, especially the way that they did the scene at the lake where they like kind of led the girl off into the woods to meet him so that he could quote unquote rescue her from the tiger that he was actually using to scare her with. And what I loved about that scene also is that the tiger wasn't doing what he wanted it to do. And it was just like, come on, like, go, go. I'm trying to, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And it wasn't doing it at all. It was just like, oh, come on, man. Really? This is what you need me for? I'm, I'm not your wingman. And then I love it when he, the tiger does go away and then they're talking and in the background you see the tiger just lounging there and, and, and it's just like, all she has to do is turn and it'd be like, oh, the whole, 
illusion will be shattered that he that he tried to build up. Yeah, I think that you know Mark Singer is not necessarily an A list actor. I think you you probably could have got a better actor to to play the lead in the movie, but it would have also changed the the tone of the movie. It would have made it less lighthearted. And I think that's the advantage that Beastmaster has over um, some of the other films of this genre around that time period is that it's, that it, I don't think it ever really takes itself too serious. Um, it's just a, a fun, it kind of, I always kind of refer to these as just a, a fun, rainy day, Saturday afternoon, you know, matinee, something that you just have fun with. And, um, it, yeah, it's got flaws, you know, like I, I talked about. I mean, some of the choreography and some of the visual aspects and, and things are, are clearly not up to par. But you're dealing with a lower-budget film. And um, I think that in many ways they, they were able to, you know, they did a lot with, with what little money they had. And that probably comes into play with Don Coscarelli because he does a lot with Phantasm, that first Phantasm film, with very little. I mean, he, he accomplishes um, a lot of atmosphere, you know, between that and the, and the soundtrack of that film, um, he pulls off quite a bit. And so I think that that may be something that he brings to the table in, in Beastmaster is that, you know, he was able to, to do a lot with his budget. You know, it, yes, like I said, he might've re, uh, allocated some of the money towards, some better choreography, um, but it doesn't cripple the film. It just It's just one of the things that kind of stands out that might have been better. But again, I, I think Mark Singer was was good in the role. Somebody else might have been better, but it would have changed the, the tone of the film into something different. One of the things I want to mention with Mark Singer, I remember seeing him in an interview oh, like 10, 15 years ago, something about it with Beastmaster. And how he said about how he felt in tuned with the tiger that was playing the panther, and like they felt like he's in his words. If, if, I'm trying to remember, like it was like a symbiotic relationship, like they were just really good friends. Because he's right next to a a tamed tiger doing these scenes, and they would not let the children or other things be near because they're worried about the tiger eating them. And here <laughs> yeah. he is with the tiger, but. I think the tiger could sense now this Mark Singer might not be all together upstairs, you know, but the tiger might sense, Oh, we're good friends here. Cause he, cause he showed no fear, I guess. And the tiger was just like, okay, we'll be buddies as long as I'm not hungry. Um, you know, is what I'm guessing. And, but that, not just with the tiger, but with the, um, the ferrets and with the Eagle, he was able to pull, act well with the animals and not many actors, can do that, you know, cause it's, it's hard cause you don't, they're not, they're not always going to do exactly what you expect to do. And you got to be ready to adapt, especially with a tiger where you probably are in the back of your mind thinking, if it does this, I got to get out of here. Cause I could be killed. Maybe Mark's well, just a real life beast master. You never know. You never know. I mean, well, honestly, there's probably a little bit to that because some people just have a way with animals, right? I mean, and animals can sense that. As with anything, uh, you know, you know, dogs, for example, I think are a good sense of, of character, good judge of character. 
because there sometimes it's, you know dogs just know good people from bad people. You know, and you can tell by the way that they act. You know, dogs will get very comfortable around you know certain people. You know, I, I've noticed that with you know dogs that I've had over the years. If somebody comes in and they immediately go right up to them. You know, sometimes it's just somebody working on a you know appliance or something. You know, some worker coming in the house, and sometimes they just go right up to them. And other times. Yeah, they're very standoffish, and uh, I, I've learned to, to take their judge uh, very seriously when it comes to people. And uh, you know, I, I've seen that all the time with with animals that I've, especially with uh, the the, uh, the dachshund that we have now, Belle. She's she's very much a good judge of character, uh, and I think that if you, if you are a lover of animals, animals have a, a way to pick up on that, and that can generate that symbiotic relationship that Mark Singer was talking about. And it results are a lot better on screen. If you're not a lover of animals, then I think animals will pick up on that. And then that just causes problems when you're, you know, trying to film scenes or whatever, because then the animals just won't want to do what they want to do, or they won't want to be around this particular actor. There's got to be a, a good symbiotic relationship. And that obviously was present in this movie. Yeah, if you're doing a movie called The Beastmaster, you need an actor that actually gets along with animals, or it's it's going to be dead on arrival, which it which it was not um, in this case. Now, there are a couple of scenes I thought that were really interesting and cool. One of them is when the witch steals the unborn baby with the cow and goes in there, and yeah. you can see the wound of the of the queen shrinking and the cow expanding and you know it, it's got to be the first time anybody stole a baby via cow <laughs> i mean it's, it's and it somehow works. I, I can't think of any other movie that, that i've seen that i'm not sure that i'd want to see that again but no i think you're right that 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 is kind of a cool cool say i like the witches in this they, these, these witches they don't get very many scenes but they uh you know, and of course, you know, when they're introduced in that one scene, right there, you're seeing their backside and you're like, oh, these, these are, you know, three hot vixens. And then, then you see, yeah, they got a great body right up to the neck and then the neck on up is uh, a little uh, worse for wear. So I thought that was kind of funny, um, the way that they were introduced. So, yeah, that's a cool scene. Um, uh, and I, I like, there's little cool little effects. Like I love the ring, right? The ring that with the little eye, simple thing. And it's something that you've seen, you know, a variation of in other movies, but those are little things like that, that you see in these fantasy films that I always think are kind of cool. Um, you know, Rip Torn as, as Mayax, I know that Rip Torn had some drug issues in the past. And there were times in this film that I kind of felt like, you know, he was, in, in the moment, and other times I kind of felt like he was just kind of out there with with his uh, performance, which at times actually worked for his character. Because as an evil wizard, it has to be kind of a little more out there anyway. Um, interesting performance. And, and it makes me think of like what Klaus Kinski would have done with that, and it would have been a totally different movie. I don't see Klaus Kinski being in a lighthearted sword and sorcery flick. I think the I whole think it pro- would have, I think the whole production would have been different. Like you're talking about the atmosphere. You throw Klaus in there. That's gotta oh, 
that would be uh, totally different. The tiger might not have been hungry for long. No, <laughs> no, it would have been a very, very different feel. Uh, and, and I'm glad that that didn't happen. Honestly, um, you know, Rip Torn. You know, he was okay in the performance. I honestly, you know, I've seen better wizards in other films. Uh, uh, you know, I. I kind of, you know, wanted a little bit more from him at times. Like I said, some scenes where he's really in the moment, other scenes, he seems a little disconjointed. Um, and I don't know if that was just that particular day or again, I know he's had, he had issues. I know with, with drugs at one point, I don't know if that, this was during that time period or not may have, may have impacted the filming of, of certain scenes, but um, Klaus Kinski would have been uh, way too dark. I think for this movie, uh, way too dark. So I'm glad that that didn't happen. You know, casting, you know, casting of movies are interesting. It's like you, you go one direction or another it can totally change the, the tone of a film. And so, um, when you look at like some of the options that they had for this movie, I'm kind of glad that they ended up with what they, with what they got as opposed to what they were looking at. Um, you know, again, Mark Singer, like I said, is not necessarily the an A-list actor, but I think that, you know, that symbiotic relationship that he had with the animals comes into play and enhances the film, you know, because he works well with the animals, whereas somebody else might not have. Now, Tanya Roberts, you know, not an A-list actress, um, and really couldn't act her way out of a paper sack if, if she tried. But, you know, she's very attractive. And I think what she does in this in this movie, this type of movie is what, and the way her character, I think she does a really good job in this film with what she is supposed to be doing. And I know this movie played a part in her getting the lead in Sheena. Uh, and that's, an example of where putting her in the lead in the movie, that movie really suffered because she couldn't carry that movie. This movie being a supporting actress, um, being the lead, you know, damsel, if you will, but not necessarily being the lead overall, um, is, is was, she was well suited for that. Um, she, Sheena, she wasn't, you know, she couldn't carry that movie. And then, of course, I'm not a fan of her in A View to a Kill, um, which I think is Roger Moore's weakest movie. He was way too old for the part by that point. Um, and I think that that, you know, she she doesn't hold up as one of the better Bond girls, in my opinion. I don't know what you all think about that. But I think Tanya Roberts, this was this was the type of movie and the size role that she was kind of best at at this point in her career, anything more, she would, she'd start to drown her inadequacies as an actress would start to really come to surface. Whereas they didn't really come to surface as much in this film. Yeah. I would say that this wasn't like the greatest movie cast of all time, but it was right for this film. It was like, if they were, too good it would have made it a more serious film and then the budget I think would have hurt it a lot more because if this was a really serious film with very serious actors that were like A-listers it 
would have raised expectations too much for what I think it would have been able to do. But where it's at, it was able to come at it with a more lighthearted approach and really still be able to get the plot through and have some good scenes and still carried at least some emotion through the film. And talking about Tanya Roberts, she, she was fine. I mean, it, 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 there was nothing exceptional about her performance. I find it kind of weird. Um, forgot who brought it up. I think you did, Rich, where they're in that one scene and she walks away, goes, finds a, goes for a secret door, and we're all like, where is she going? And she comes back in a different outfit. It's like it was almost like she has a secret closet, you know, to change clothes. And then she comes back and then, you know, Dar looks at her like, you know, oh, a different outfit. You know, it's like, and it, it's like, you're scratching your head like, well, why? But, eh, you know, it's just, just go for it. Now, when she left, I thought she was going to, like, be on the other side, like, have been a spy the whole time and yeah. go over yeah. to the other team, so to speak. But it didn't end up happening. Yeah, I thought- yeah it was non-sequence. They, they kind of threw that in there, and you're, like, expecting more out of it. And then, no, no, she just changed clothes. That's all she did and revealed that, she was a little bit more warrior than helpless. You know, like she had been kind of betrayed up to that point, but beyond that, there wasn't much more to it. Now, one of my other favorite scenes is when Dar encounters the bat creatures. Um, when, when he goes to their little, like, um, uh, I guess their little, not village, but their little camp set up, and he frees the one guy, and he gets um, digested, by the bad creatures in a rather gruesome way. But I like the effects that they did with them. And then of course it set them up for later on, you know, cause, cause they, um, for when they came into the movie at the climax, but for a low budget film, I, I, I could buy, I thought that was cool. It's still, hold, I think, I think it still held up with it's, um, uh, even though you're not seeing what they're doing, you see the end result. It's kind of like, <laughs> but if, I think it was good. I don't know if they were yeah. bat creatures, but I thought that was definitely cool. I guess they worship eagles because when that golden eagle showed up, they kind of all backed off a of Mark Singer. And the one that you thought was going to get him just gave him a medallion. So it worked out in the end for him. I don't, I don't necessarily think that they were bat creatures. I think they were some kind of like group that worshipped this eagle thing and so they had kind of like morphed into like some kind of eagle bat merv morphed creature yeah thing. i thought they were more like a bird man you thing know they have a yeah beak. bats don't have beaks i was looking at their wings and their wings didn't their look wings like... were bat like yeah so that's why i based faces it over. and you always saw them at night not. you never saw them in daytime what doesn't yeah. necessarily mean anything. But I don't think the bats would have been as connected to the uh, golden eagle as like a bird person creature thing would be. And I mean, think about it. If a person morphed into some kind of bird creature, all they have is skin. People don't have feathers. And so bat wings are more like human hands than bird wings because they have the different digits of like our hands that go out into their wings so it makes sense if some kind of human like 
worshiper cult thing if they transformed themselves into bird creatures that they would have leathery flesh-like wings because well, they used to be human. Here's a, here's the thing I'm going to put out there. Remember I talked about the book said that's supposed to take place in the a science fiction type future. What if they never decide they never tell you what this takes place and I want every time I've watched this movie I always thought it took place like in the past like in a Conan type setting, you know, some type of variation of that. But after reading that and thinking about this with humans mutating, maybe something happened in society. And this is hundreds, thousands of years later. And that's why some of these people have certain abilities and stuff like that. Why the witches look the way they do. Why why these um, bird bat-like creatures look the way they do and something like that. And him having the ability to be communicate with the beast is this actually is the future. And all this time, I thought it took place in the past. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, they could, that could be where they were kind of going with that. They never really do explain. Fantasy films always kind of exist in their own little realm, you know, because they're never really entirely set, you know, in like our normal past. Um, but they never, most of the time they never really explain, like, are we on another planet or just, you know, in another time? And they just, it's that vagueness. It's kind of left up to the imagination, you know, like with Conan, you know, they always talk about these other countries that obviously didn't exist. We've never heard of them, but they never really go into much more detail as far as are they on another planet or is this just a, another time that a time that's been forgotten? You know, that's always that kind of, to me, that's always the way I look at it is this is a ancient time that's been kind of forgotten in the ages of wizards and warriors and that kind of thing. But yeah, you could be right. Maybe this is a futuristic movie. This is not a, this is a, maybe a little bit more sci-fi element to it than, uh, you know, it, I guess it depends on how much they pull from the original source material. Because again, even though the, the author distanced themselves from the, the finished product, doesn't mean that there aren't key elements from the novel that are still present in the movie. It just means that they decided they didn't want to be attached to it. Now, do we want to move into some things that we might not have liked or that we would change about the film? I think Rich threw out like a, a few of those. Why don't you start off, Ben? Something that I would have liked more is if there were more animals with the Beastmaster. I thought that it was a little bit strange that he only he's the Beastmaster, but he only has one golden eagle, two ferrets, and a tiger. Like, there's definitely more animals in this area. And especially at the part where they're saying, oh, we need an army of some kind. I kind of had this expectation that he was going to end up attacking this big city with like an army of animals to help him. Whether it be like rats that are in the city or mice or something or different lizards that are in the area or something like that. I kind of just assumed that that was the direction it was going to go. And I guess they probably couldn't do that because of how low budget the movie is. But I would almost like to see a modern day version where that does happen. And also, like the, what was it, the Jun Horde or whatever they were, they all rode horses, which are animals, which he has control over. Sort of. So, like, I don't quite understand why he didn't just, you know... 
the horse is on his side and to turn against them. Because then you, like, you've taken away their mode of transportation. They're all on top of these horses anyway. And horses can kick and kill you and then trample you. So they would have taken away, like, I guess, like, half-ish of that army. The animal half of it anyway. That, that would, I was thinking that too, but the, the horses and I, I don't think he can commands them or controls them as much as communicates with them. And I think with the horses, especially war horses, they're so trained to do certain things that maybe he wasn't able to override their training and communicating with them and was, it was able to explain, you know, especially in a battle scene, you know, like it's not like he had a time to develop that relationship that he did with the um, the other animals, which he's carrying, which he's catching and more of them. They're wild. They're, un, they're not tamed. And so maybe he has some problems with that. I don't know. But it would have been cool scene to see all the horses just take them down because they already got them there and, like, throw them off, and then they have to come by foot and try to get over that moat. Um, that would have that would have made an interesting scene. And that would have been, if if you didn't have the, the, the other creatures coming, um, that we talked about earlier, it's that the horses could have been the thing that turned the tide, and that would have been pretty cool to see. Yeah, I think with a bigger budget, that would have been would have been interesting to see what they could have done with including more animals. And yeah, I hadn't, hadn't even thought about that. Uh, an army of animals would have been impossible to do at that time, and with and with you know low budget. But now, you know, you could do a a good looking CGI army of animals and could really totally change, you know, the Beastmaster into something much bigger, much grander. It, it, the more we talk, the more I, I think this is a, uh, a franchise that, that needs to be revisited. And it's a franchise cause you've got a total of three films and a TV series. So, um, it'd be interesting to see what, uh, what they could do with a, a modern, uh, a modern take on the Beastmaster. Uh, Mark Singer would probably be too old to play Dar, but it'd be fun to see him come back and maybe play the father figure uh, and come back and then some type of small role just to pay homage to what he had, you know, done decades earlier with the original series. And going tying all with that, I think back to those old Tarzan movies with Johnny Weissmiller where he would have like the animal stampede, you know, and, and usually <laughs> yeah, they're showing yeah. stock footage, but I mean, you know, it's, it shows now somebody could, you know, literally raise an army of their, his animal friends and go through it. And, and if you think about that, it's like where a lot of people say, Oh, Aquaman has no real powers, but Aquaman can communicates with all the creatures of the sea. And so if you're in the water, he has a huge force and the beast master has been established to, com- to communicate with all the animals on land. Who knows if he can communicate with the animals under the sea, but let, but he could develop a huge force. But if it's um, how many animals are in that area and things like that, I don't know it, but it would have been cool to see like a swarm of birds come down at them or other things. Um, groundhogs, who knows? Prairie dogs go for it all. You know, it's just a, a squirrel <laughs> an army. army of, an <laughs> army of groundhogs. <laughs> That's, uh, well, you know, Don Coscarelli is still alive, right? Maybe you could talk him into coming back and, uh, <laughs> that, that's taking the franchise in a whole different direction there. Beastmaster 4, Day of the Groundhog. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I mean, you know, why not? I mean, it can't be any worse. I, mean, I haven't seen the sequels, but uh, I know that the Beastmaster 2, I think they paid four or six million dollars to make it and it made less than a million. So it's, uh, and then the other one went straight to um, TV. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I didn't even know that those movies existed. So uh, the 90s is, is kind of this black hole I've talked about. I, I, I had just gotten married and had kids back then. So there's a lot of stuff in the 90s that I am still now just discovering. There's just a lot of things that went under my radar. Uh, entirely. So I, I see, gosh, Beastmaster 2 and 3. I'm intrigued. Scared. Scared if these films are of a lesser production, you know. It's like, oh my gosh, what do they do with these? But uh, uh, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious to see what, what they did with uh, the character. And I know, I think Beastmaster 2 takes him to modern times, I think. I think he doesn't he come to the to modern day or something. One of those two movies, I think I was doing some research just glancing at what they were about. And that seems like an easy way to do it, right? Take him out of the past and throw him into the present. Well, I guess maybe that answers the question, though. If if he is, you know, brought to modern day time, maybe that answers the question that he did take place on Earth, just in a in a time way past or way future. Yeah, or on a different well, world, a parallel guess, world, a parallel world. <laughs> yes. I'm almost interested as to who owns the rights to Beastmaster because that would greatly affect their interpretation of the film. Because if it's like Netflix picked it up at some point, it might end up being completely different than if like Disney owns it and it's just one of the franchises they have and haven't done anything with or Universal or... Well, if Disney owns it, it's going to be the, the, the Beastmaster, the musical. The, the, all the animals will be singing, you know, and that kind of stuff. Well, Don Coscarelli doesn't own the rights because I did say that he sold off the rights to the story and characters. So he doesn't, he didn't have any involvement in the TV uh, series or the sequels. And so he doesn't get any money uh, at all from it. So he, he was involved initially, but beyond that, he had the rights, but then he sold them all. So, um, and I don't know who did. I don't know who did the other movies. I'm taking a quick glance to see which studio did Beastmaster Two and Beastmaster Three, and it looks like um, hmm. NCA Television. While you're looking that up, um, the movie's about two hours long, and my the, my biggest thing on the movie is it it could have been. 20 minutes shorter, maybe a half hour shorter. Cause there were some scenes in there that were um, really it's like one of them. He's, he's swinging a stick to practice his sword fighting. And then after a minute of music and him swinging the stick around, he switches to the sword. Well, why was he swinging the stick, the branch? You know, he could have just went right to the sword. Having, you know, it's like, it's like you're showing us the same thing twice going on for, you know, like a minute or so. And it was just, it's like, what's, what's the point? I mean, unless, you know, it's eye candy for people to see Mark Singer, you know, and, you know, that kind of stuff in his skimpy little outfit. Well, I think that, I would say that falls on Don Coscarelli. Have you seen the Phantasm series? Yes. Okay. So, you know, that, you know, well, the first one is, is, 
you know, a classic. The rest of the films leave a lot to desire, be desired. And there is, especially dealing with Phantasm 3 and 4, which he directed. He didn't direct 5, which is its own set of problems. But 3 and 4, there's a lot in those movies that, you yeah, a better director would have done a lot better. Don Coscarelli is, you know, talked about Phantasm, this, this classic film, but Don Coscarelli is not on the level of other, you know, genre directors. He, he doesn't get talked about in the same circle because the Phantasm series is, I love it, but it is, it's an uneven franchise. I mean, and it's a franchise that, goes down a path where there's a, there is a lot of repetition and a lot of things that happen in some of those later movies that are ultimately pointless. Um, and that shows his inefficiencies as a director, in my opinion. Fun stuff happens in some of those movies, certainly, but um, there's also a lot that ultimately seems like been there, done that, or seems like it's just randomly thrown out there without any explanation given. I mean, and honestly, I think even by the time we get to the end of Phantasm Five, I still don't really fully understand half the crazy stuff that gets casually mentioned in those Phantasm movies, because there was never really any explanation given. They were just there's a lot of imagery and things that happened without any explanation, and so that probably is what he did during the making of Beastmaster. I think that there's just certain things that were done maybe for a visual appearance. But at the end of the day, really didn't make a lot of sense. Um, much more prominent in the Phantasm films, but I think there's certainly that comes into play in some of the scenes in Beastmaster where Don Coscarelli is not necessarily an A-list director. I'd, I'd say that. I'd like agree with that. Because um, partially, like, when they, they died, the tiger black. I don't know why they just couldn't have gone with the normal tiger, but I just looked it up. And so the tiger died shortly after the movie because of an allergic reaction he had to the dye that they died in black with. Uh, and so, like, I wish they would have just gone with a normal tiger. Yeah, he didn't died. like the stripe. He didn't like the way the stripes looked on camera, and, and that's just horrible. Yeah. And from my understanding, there were two tigers, and one of them died um, from the dye. Um, and, Sultan, I think was his name. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and to me, it's just I knew that I didn't tell Michaela that earlier on because I know how she she's like Carla, and I, I was just like, uh, it, it made no sense to me. I I understood he didn't want the stripes or whatever. Or maybe in the book it's supposed to be a pain for. I have no idea. I got to read this book. Got to got to find out more about what it was originally supposed to be. But going back to the pacing thing, the the, the other thing is the movie has two climaxes where they could have combined the two together. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a climax with him against the high wizard and then the, with him and the people against the Junes. And they could have been, it could have worked out where maybe he had to fight through the Junes to get to the high wizard, who's supposed to be the big bad and um, have that scene there or, you know, or, or everything's happening at one time. But instead it's like, you have this whole setup again where, Oh, now we got to set up our defenses against the Junes and all this other stuff. And it, I think it could have worked out more that way and and it would have it might have saved on the time thing because it just felt like it was just oh it's over no we got another 20 minutes to go and um you know but i mean those are just to me those are the, the, the big issue i had was just it could have been cut to a nice 
90 minutes or a hundred minute film. And I think it would have been so much more tighter. And um, the other thing is there was one scene we all, when all three of us were watching it, we looked at ourselves or looked at each other um, when he's, he has, he has to um, seal off this one part so that everybody else can escape in, in, in the end. And he puts down this um, big skull like boulder over the escape hatch and he, cause he couldn't, he couldn't keep it. He had to cut the thing. So he's trapped himself in there, but he looks, you see nobody there. And then when the people arrive, Kira's there. And I'm like, she must have extremely high ratings in stealth because, because <laughs> <laughs> there was no way one, either he didn't seal the, the, the escape for the other people properly or two, she hit in the shadows so well that none of us could see her. I, you know, yeah, I, I know that scene is like, I thought that it implied that maybe she had, there was more to her than, than what we, cause it kind of goes like when she changes into her warrior outfit or whatever, you know, it seemed to me that, that there was these little implications that there was more to her than what she was letting on, but then they never really did anything with that. It's almost like when they made that scene, they were planning on doing something more with her character and then abandon it because then maybe they didn't have the budget or the time to do what they wanted to do with that. And, you know, or maybe there was something that landed on the cutting room floor that might have explained it. Sometimes those, you know, those choices are made that just kind of leaves you scratching your head. I, I, having just watched Star Trek Picard and the final episode, there was a character who just kind of disappears in the final act. And they filmed a scene that explained him getting captured. Um, but they decided to cut it out of the final episode. And I'm like, well, you're screaming. You don't, you don't have a time limit. You could have left that extra, you know, two minutes of footage in and it would explain what happened to this character. Other, uh, but now it's kind of like, well, whatever happened to him? He was the bad guy for 10 episodes and he just kind of disappears in the final act. Uh, the last time you see him is kind of like standing somewhere and then that's it. So maybe there was more to her character than, than what they were that ended up hitting, you know, in the, the finished product. But yeah, that's an odd scene. I was like, where was she at? Just like kind of sneaking around, all of a sudden she's like, "Oh, hello, I'm here." Yeah, it was kind of odd. Yeah, I think they probably did intend to do something more with her character or have some more things. Because I remember the one kid, the like second son of the king or whatnot. He, when the when Kira, Kiri or whatever her name is, came back from changing her outfit, he made like a side comment to Dar about, "Oh, she's from." this warrior like order and the temple used to be their home and that's yeah. all that's ever mentioned about it. It was really left. I, I think like Rich said, there's, there was something they were going to do with her and they left it out. They could have put it in. And like I said, made one climax instead of two and cut some other things there. And it would still probably have been an hour and 40 minutes and they could have explained her character a little better. I think Ben went to add something too. Yeah, I, I agree. It did not make sense 
for them to have taken the city, it should have been like they had to fight the Jungs to get to the city or something like that before they ever saved the king, who really just for some reason hates Dar, <laughs> calls him a coward because he doesn't want to invade the city with like 20 guys. He's like, this is a bad idea. And the king's like, get out of here. I never want to hear you again or something like that because he's blind. So it's like that sequence didn't necessarily make the most sense because now it puts Dar in like a terrible spot where he has to go in and save everyone again that he's already saved once. Or twice, depending upon Yeah, it's. It it's like at this point, <laughs> at this point, it's like everybody else is kind of ineffective. In fo- like this king is an ineffective ruler, and Dar's basically just the guy there who's saving their butts at the end of the day after they all go and screw up. And I mean, well, I felt like it was odd though that they're talking about that battle, right? The king's going to lead him into battle, and John Amos, you know, his character says, you know, we're all doomed, and then all of a sudden the next morning. You know, Mark Singer wakes up and he found out they're all captured, that it was all that they they met their their end. You know, they were all, you know, for not like he thought he told them it was a mistake. And it was like to me, there was like that we were cheated out of that that battle sequence. That was something that should have happened. We should have seen that on screen. We should have seen them get get captured. And it just seems like there's almost like a time jump there because it's just it's implied that he's waking up the next morning, and then, you know, it might not have been the next morning, but it's implied it's the next morning, and now everyone's been defeated, and and now it's up to him to to save the day again. It it, it seemed like there was something left out. And what was especially bad about this whole battle plan is John Amos's character sees that the eye the ring eye that you brought up earlier. And it's and like, they know our plans we got. And he's like, we're doing it anyway. And that's when he, so you're going to do exactly what you just said. They know exactly what you're going to do. I didn't mind not seeing it because it was going to be a route. I mean, you looked at the, the group that they had and you just figured their forces that they're going against. It was just going to be an annihilation. Like we saw in early in the film when the Juns took over and destroyed the one village. So Considering the movie is two hours long, I didn't mind not seeing that part and then it jumped into the future. But I can see if, again, if they trim some stuff here and there, then that would have been a nice addition to show, I mean, like a one or two minute thing showing how bad it went real fast. It didn't have to be a long sequence, but it could have been shown. And that almost reminded me of the, uh, I think it was a Hercules movie that came out like five years ago where Hercules had trained up this, group of people to take away this oppressive ruler seemingly oppressive ruler's power and he was basically helping the wrong side and when they saved king zed and did all this stuff it almost seemed like that where you went and you've thrown all your energy into saving this one person and then they turn around and just like smack you in the face and send you away with nothing yeah, you feel a little cheated, yeah. Well, I think part of it they're trying to show that he was a broken character because he'd been 
his eyes were burned out. He'd been, um, who knows what other tortures he suffered. He was, um, jailed and, and stuff like that. So I think they're just trying to, you know, all he wanted was, I mean, he just basically, I, I look at it, he went insane and he just wanted revenge. And he was like, Captain Ahab, I don't care what it is. We're going to do this. And, yeah. But they didn't really spend time on it. I mean, you have to really, in, you know, intuit a lot of these things. And I think with a better director um, and a better script, it could have been fleshed out a little more in, in those parts, which Rich brought up earlier and we've brought up before about, like, it's just the, the, the hand that was helming the ship could have done things a little differently. And, and again, it might have been filmed and it could have been with the editing that we're left with a lot of these questions. And let's be honest, like, at that point, Seth has clearly realized that Zed is crazy and that this is a bad plan. And a lot of those people probably would have followed Seth and the Beastmaster if they had said, this is a bad plan together and just said not to listen to this king because he had gone insane or had done this. And you never would have had this battle that they presumably lost rather quickly and rather badly. And the other thing is, they have like 20 people, give or take, probably like maybe 50 in total if there are others that they don't show. And they're trying to siege a city that is surrounded by a tar pit, basically, has gates, like half a gate really, and has walls that are huge. And this force called the Death Guard that's probably at least equal or comparable in size to their own, but definitely has a lot stronger fighting force. So it's like there's no way they're even getting through this gate the way that they're trying to win this situation. But otherwise, I think um, I think we've covered this movie pretty well um, going through it. So we're going to move into whether we recommend this movie to other people or not. And uh, Rich, we'll start with you since you're the guest. Would you recommend this to somebody that's never seen it before? Well, I want to stop. There's one thing we didn't talk about. The, the thing we kind of, I was giving the teaser at before we hit record on this episode. And that's something that I, my, that Carla caught in this movie. And that's the music. Steve, did you recognize anything in the theme to the Beastmaster? Um, I'm not sure where you're going with it, but I mean, I'm, you know, I know the Beastmaster CD is, is pretty popular. It's been out and it, they did a reproduction of it. There is a part of the Beastmaster theme, which is exactly like the theme from Battlestar Galactica. And I, it was one of those things where I didn't catch it. But Carla is in the other room, and she hears it, and she says, that's Battlestar Galactica. And I was like, what? And I go back and play it again, and she's exactly right. And I thought, well, okay, sometimes composers will use certain elements of, of a theme in other works that they did. For example, James Horner, his theme, some of his, his battle theme music in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, he lifted that directly and put it into Aliens four years later. If you listen to those two soundtracks and the two battle sequences back-to-back, -back, I mean, it, it, there's no shame in what he did, right? He, he just 
he lifts it entirely. When you're listening to the Alien soundtrack, I immediately see the Reliant and the Enterprise battling. You can't help but do that. So some composers do that. There's no direct correlation between Beastmaster and Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica, composer was Stu Phillips. The music for uh, Beastmaster was Lee Holdridge, and he composed many other things. This was four years after Battlestar Galactica, and you could say, well, it, it could have been pure accident, but it, when you hear it, you can't unhear it. And so I went online, did some Google things, and yes, many other people have commented that it is clearly Battlestar Galactica music. Um, and it's just the one part of the theme where it goes in a da 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 that's Battlestar Galactica, but it's also part a big part of the Beastmaster theme. I don't know, you know, not saying he, he, you know, stole that part of it. Sometimes musicians will hear music, and then when they're composing their own, they will unintentionally put, you know, beats or chords into their song, and often will get accused of stealing a riff or something where, in fact, it was just, something they heard and they incorporated into their own without even intentionally doing it. But once Carla caught that to my attention, I thought it was funny. She's on upstairs in the bedroom and she hears it and picked up on it immediately. And I, it was totally escaping me. But once I heard it, I was like, I couldn't unhear it. So, and I don't, I'm sure Steve, that you're a Battlestar Galactica fan or have seen it. So when you get done recording, Go on YouTube, listen to Battlestar Galactica theme, listen to the Beastmaster theme, and then you'll hear the similarities. And it's one of those things that I don't know that there's anything more to it other than once you hear it, you can't unhear it. So I just wanted to throw that out there to drive people nuts. I mean, the other thing with like a lot of composers do lift certain chord sequences from other composers, and that's happened for hundreds of years. But you never know which composer created that sequence first because the composer for Beastmaster could have put it in a song that he composed like 10 years before Battlestar Galactica came out. Yeah. And then the yeah. Battlestar Galactica guy could have heard it at some point and was like, this would be great in this scene or done it on his own, not even realizing someone else had made a similar thing before because there's only so many chord progressions that you can do and it's so many keys that you can compose in that it's a lot of things do get reused in several songs and it's just different volumes, different emotions can be conveyed through usually the same sequence of chords. And I mean, you never know if it's like intentionally like I'm going to use this or if it's just I heard this one time and it worked. Yeah, it's the case where like James Horner does the music for Wrath of Khan and then used it again in Aliens four years later. To me, you know, I, as a composer and just four years separate, I, I was always shocked that he did that. Because, I mean, I was in the movie theater watching Aliens, and I remember thinking, that's Wrath of Khan. I'm, I'm hearing Star Trek music. And, I, and that's, it is, there's so many strong similarities there. It's almost like he doesn't even try to do anything different when he did that. Uh, and I read something, you're, I've read two different takes on it. One, where James Horner 
actually argued that there was no difference or that there was that there was uh, that they were totally different. That was his initial claim. It was like, no, no, totally different. And then later had to backtrack and acknowledge, well, there are some similarities between the two, which makes me think that he he just blatantly stole something that he had done four years earlier because maybe maybe he had a mental block and he had to to, to compose some music for this scene and just liked that particular uh, battle music and, and just reused it again. Um, I've always I mean James Horner was an amazing composer and did so many different great compositions. It always struck me as odd that he would choose to just use this. You know, it wasn't just one little riff. It was like the whole sequence. It was faster in Aliens. It was, it was a quicker pace. But um, this, you know, may have been just one of those freak things. Um, there may have been, again, like you said, Lee Holdridge may have composed something similar years earlier. Maybe Stu Phillips was the one that picked that up on it. It's just it one of those things again. Where once I've heard it, now I can't unhear it. But anytime now that I I watch Battlestar Galactica or I see Beastmaster again, I'm going to think of the other. I can't unhear it, and and that uh, this guy struck me as funny. Cool, and yeah, I think that, I think with Carla, one of the advantages she had over you is that she was just hearing it and wasn't seeing the movie at the same time. Yes, so that was able, so she was able to just key on that. And I think if you had your eyes closed, um, you would have picked up on it right away. But Rich, you still haven't answered the question. I would know you recommend this movie to the average person. I would recommend this uh, to someone who was looking for a lighthearted sword and sorcery fantasy flick. Um, that is harmless, I guess is, is, is a way to put it. If you're looking for something to, to share with your kids outside of the Tanya Roberts in the, in the lake sequence, um, there's really nothing, you know, offensive in this movie. Um, there's, there's nothing, uh, uh, some animal sequences that if you're sensitive you know, to that, you need to be aware of that going in. But, um, yeah, if you're looking for just a fun Saturday afternoon, rainy day, matinee, fantasy flick, Beastmaster, you can't go wrong. Like I said, there's films that are better, there's films that are worse. This falls right smack dab in the middle, and uh, I think you'll have a good time with it. I'm going to second with Rich and recommend it also. And I enjoyed it when I saw it when I was younger. I still enjoy it today. Not as much as I did when I was younger, because, again, I'm noticing those pacing issues. And I want to rec- I'm going to um, repeat what Rich was saying. If you are one that does not like seeing animals killed in movies, you know, like not, they're not really killed for real. Um, there are a couple animal deaths that happen. One early on, one late in the movie. Um, so that, that so if you're very sensitive to that, you you know you might want to pick up like if somebody else is watching it, they can tell you after the first one happens, and then you can you know skip. Um, the, the, the first climax with the high priest is when the second one happens and you can skip those two little spots and you really would still be to enjoy the movie. I think that's the one thing interesting about this movie is you can sit down and plop into it. And since it really doesn't um, effectively, de- you know, define everything, you could sit down and pretty much pick up what's going on and watch it. Like Rich said, you're sitting on a Saturday, you flip on the TV, you see Beastmaster. And I think that's probably why it was so popular is people, even if they hadn't seen it, they're like, Oh, I know it's, it can figure out relatively easily what's happening and what's going on in the film. So yes, I do give it a recommend that I'm going to pass it over to Ben. I do recommend the film. Uh, 
people that love animals will like it because it does give animal portrayals in films. I mean, there are two relatively sad scenes where the animals get killed, but it is a relatively positive film with animals appearing in it, which, I mean, they didn't necessarily get great treatment, like the two tigers that were painted black or dyed black. And I guess that is a negative, but if you like, if you're like me and you like seeing things that you enjoy in regular life in TV and in movies, then seeing the animals and just being animals and interacting with humans on the big screen or on your home screen, watching this film, it, it really is nice. And I would definitely recommend it to people that like animals. Um, I, I guess I would also recommend this movie because um, I enjoyed the humor in it and the interactions of the animals with Dar um, that they had. Uh, it was nice. I mean, I only really liked the scenes with the animals. I didn't really care too much for the people that were in it. Um, so... I'd really just be recommending it for the interesting animal scenes. And thankfully, because it's called the Beastmaster, there are a lot of animal scenes. So it's yeah. it's not like it's just a couple. It's predominantly throughout the movie. And uh, so four out of four recommends for 1982's The Beastmaster. Um, Rich, um, what are some things that you would, um, so people want to follow along with you besides um, your podcast? Um, what other things do you do that you want people to follow? All right. Well, you know, the blogs are, are going strong. Uh, com is where you'll find everything that I do. Um, and anything that's sci-fi or monster-related, you'll find over at uh, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. But uh, com is the main site. And uh, right now, uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, the typical horror genre that I, I tend to gravitate towards, but uh, Carla and I are going through the films of Laurel and Hardy. Um, we did March Brothers last year and had a lot of fun with that. So this year we're doing uh, all of the feature films with Laurel and Hardy. We're watching everything that they did um, kind of in chronological order. We're, we're still watching a lot of their uh, two reelers and three reelers, but for the blog, we're covering all of the movies. And uh, as you and I record this, we're, we're right around the mid-1930s. And so by the time we get to late September, we'll be at the end of their career. So uh, we're having a lot of fun with that. I'm already talking about next year, next summer, keeping with this lighthearted theme. I think we're going to do WC Fields next year. So um, that's something we have a lot of fun with because we, we always tend to watch sci-fi and horror movies, so watching these classic comedies are something we both love to do, and uh, a little laughter uh, in 2020 is certainly needed, so we're having a lot of fun with it. Um, I also do some stuff over at the Memiverse Month, Monthly Audio Cast. I always get that confusing. I was going to say, that's easy to uh, say. Say three times fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Kansas City Crypt feature. Um, going to have the... Uh, Beware the Blob is going to be covered in the upcoming July episode. I recorded it for June, and then uh, our good friend, uh, Mr. Mim over there, did some changes. So he held over 
for the uh, July episode. So my thoughts on that movie will be coming up in the July episode. And then uh, I do some things over at the Dread Media podcast from time to time. A little less frequent over there. That's more mainstream uh, contemporary horror. But I've got uh, a few things I'm I'm thinking about recording. Uh, Des over there just kind of lets me do what I want to do when I want to do it. So uh, it just kind of comes together a bit more randomly over there. So that's that's where you can find me. Uh, mostly Laurel and Hardy stuff right now in the, in the summer months. And then uh, Carl and I are just watching some franchises on our own and not really covering for the blog. We just wrapped up the Indiana Jones films. We're going to dive into the, uh, the Tom Hanks uh, Da Vinci Code trilogy, as I like to call it. That's uh, We're going to start that up next and then... Uh, also looking at uh, revisiting the National Treasure movies and uh, the Back to the Future films. So some franchises that uh, we haven't uh, haven't seen for a long time. And in fact, the Tom Hanks movies, I've only seen The Vinci Code. I haven't seen Angels and Demons and Inferno. So that'll be first time viewing for me. So that's what's going on with me. Cool. And um, Ben, what are some ways they can follow our podcast? So you can follow us at Diecast Movie Reviews on Instagram. Um, I believe you can also follow us on the Diecast Movie Review Podcast on Facebook. And we're still getting up to date on Instagram. And I believe that we're current with our things that we put out on Facebook. Um, you can also follow us on Spotify at the Diecast Movie Review Podcast or on Anchor. And if you want to send us an email, it could be um, or a voice message, you can send it to us at diecastmoviereviewpodcast at gmail.com. And Rich, just before we um, end everything, we're going to roll the dice to see what genre, when we have you come back, that you have to pick a movie from. All right. So first we're going to we're going to roll die to decide which die we have to roll for the genre because we have two different dies. So. It's a one. So we're going to be rolling die number one. And Michaela, what are the six options that you might end up getting? So the options are comedy, animation, foreign, sci-fi, fantasy, or independent. What are you hoping for, Rich? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, comedy. Yeah. You didn't get comedy. Okay. <laughs> what did I get? Independent. Oh, that was probably the one I was least. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, I guess I guess your your um, your um, mental waves, your the negative vibes, negative vibes were coming out. If you if you if you wouldn't be if you'd be more like Oddball and less like Moriarty from Kelly's Heroes, you probably would have got what you wanted. You know, I, I'm already thinking though. Um, there's some movies that I that I've become aware of in the last several years. When I was uh, a member of the Kansas City Film Critics Circle, I would get. Uh, a ton of movies every November and December for consideration, right? Because the Kansas City Film Critics Circle would vote on their favorite movies of the year. And so I would get exposed to a plethora of films that I'd never heard of or hadn't really seen very much of. And, I, and I'm not a member anymore. And I kind of missed that last year, but I still have a very nice, healthy stack of films. And there's actually uh, some some films in there that in that stack that I might... Uh, might choose uh, and there's a, a few that actually fall in line with science fiction some independent science fiction films that i'm immediately coming 
coming to my mind. So uh, I don't know. That might, I might have fun with that. I was I was worried. I was I was like, oh God, please no, please no. But now I'm kind of thinking maybe I'll I'll have some fun with that. I was so. going to say, um, you know, you mentioned the memberverse. You know, he is an independent filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that is true. That is true. Josh Kennedy is an independent filmmaker, so yeah. So that I was, kind of yeah. I was just trying to throw you a bone to help you out. I was like, it's like all oh, independent thinking. It's it, you just talked about the Christopher Min might have to get rid of you on the podcast. <laughs> well, see, I you know that's where like with independent, I, I kind of think of although he does fall in that category. To me, he he's the memberverse, right? That's I don't consider. He is an independent filmmaker, but I almost consider him his own separate entity out there in, in the, the film universe. So the memberverse kind of stands on its own above above other things. So well, we'll that's let you, why I didn't immediately. Well, we'll let you ponder what you're going to pick. And um, I'm going to thank you again for joining us as a guest host for this episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. Did you, um, I hope you have a good weekend. The rest, of, Actually, it's a Sunday recording, so I hope you have a good rest of the day. Yeah, yeah, I go back to work tomorrow, ending my vacation. So I'm, uh, uh, it's hot here. I think you guys mentioned it's hot where you are. So I'm uh, just kind of laying low and uh, uh, getting ready to head back to work after a nice lengthy uh, vacation that would have been Monster Bash week, but unfortunately it wasn't. But it was, uh, it was a nice restful vacation. I haven't had a week, a full week off in a year. So it was, uh, just what I needed to recharge the batteries. And there was plenty of movies and reading that happened in the last week. So I guess I'm ready to go back to work as much as anybody is. All right. And thank you again for joining us, Rich. Um, and thank you everybody else for listening to this episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. We hope you'll stay tuned and see which movie we'll pick next. <laughs>